0: You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works Volume 121 by Rudolf Steiner, 11 Lectures entitled The Mission of Folk Souls, translated by Joanna Collis. This is the last lecture, Lecture 11, given in Christiania, Oslo, June 17, 1910. In beginning our final lecture, I have to admit that a great deal still remains to be said, and that in this series we have touched only the fringe of a subject that covers a very wide field indeed. I can only hope that this will not be our last opportunity to speak together about subjects of this kind. But since a wider discussion of this theme could anyway lead to certain difficulties, we shall for the moment have to be satisfied with a mere introduction. A common thread in our later considerations has been the idea that within Germanic-Nordic mythology there is an element that connects wonderfully in an imaginative form with the findings of modern spiritual research. This allows us to hope that the folk spirit, the archangel who directs and guides this country here, will imbue modern philosophy and modern spiritual research with the capacities he has developed over the centuries, that modern spiritual science may thereby be fertilized in a way that is in keeping with the people. If we were to penetrate further into the details of Germanic-Nordic mythology, we would see all the more how its pictures give expression to the great esoteric truths in a way that surpasses all other mythologies. Perhaps some of you who have read my book titled An Outline of Esoteric Science or who have heard other lectures I have been able to give here will remember that once upon a time, in the course of earth evolution, a process occurred that we may describe as the descent of those human souls who in primeval times before the old Lemurian Epoch had ascended, for very particular reasons, to other planets of our planetary system, to Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, Venus, and Mercury, and who during the latter part of the Lemurian Epoch and throughout the Atlantean Epoch had striven to unite with what human bodies had gradually developed, including the capacities that had unfolded after the hardening forces of the moon had left the Earth. So those Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, Venus, and Mercury souls descended to the Earth, a process that can still be verified today in the Akashic Chronicle. During the Atlantean epoch, the air of Atlantis was filled with watery mists, This was connected with the descent of those souls who could be perceived by the old clairvoyance of Atlantean times. Whenever new beings were born into the as yet soft, pliant bodies of that time, whenever such beings descended from the spiritual heights, this was seen as the external manifestation of souls descending out of the cosmos, out of the atmosphere, out of planetary spheres in order to unite with the bodies that were coming into being on the earth. The earthly bodies were impregnated by something that streamed down from heavenly heights. That process is remembered in Nordic-Germanic mythology. Consciousness of it persisted so long that even Tacitus, still found it among the southern Germanic peoples, when he was making the observations he recorded in his title Germania, we will not understand the account Tacitus gives of the goddess Nerthus unless we realize that this process did actually occur. The chariot of the goddess Nerthus was driven over the face of the waters. This survived as a ritual. But before that it had been a matter of direct perception. What this goddess had to offer to the human souls descending from the planetary spheres was everything there was to offer by way of human bodies. This is the mystery underlying the Nerthus myth. And it has survived in all that has come down to us in the older sagas and legends that point to the birth of the physical human being. Njord, intimately related to the goddess Nerthus, is her male counterpart. He depicts the primeval memory of the beings of spirit and soul who had once ascended to planetary heights and then in Atlantean times had descended again in order to unite with human physical bodies. In my pamphlet on the esoteric significance of blood, you may read about the important role that has been played by the mixing of peoples and the interaction of peoples in certain periods. Now it was not only the mixing and interaction of peoples, expressed in the intermixing of blood that played an important role, but also the soul and spiritual guidance of the folk spirits. The direct vision of that descent has been preserved in the greatest purity in those sagas which arose in former times in Nordic regions. It is in the sagas of the Vanir that you can find one of the oldest recollections of that descent. Especially here in the north, The Finnish tradition still preserves the living memory of a union of the soul-spirit which descended from planetary heights with what emanated from the body of the earth itself and which Nordic tradition knows as Griesenheim or Jotunheim, home of the giants. Whatever has developed out of the body of the earth belongs to Riesenheim. We realize, therefore, that Nordic-Germanic human beings were always aware of spiritual impulses, that they felt within their gradually evolving soul the workings of the old vision of the gods that was still natural to them, when in those ancient times the watery mists of Atlantis still wafted across this region. Nordic-Germanic human beings felt within them some spark of the god who was directly descended from those divine spiritual beings, those archangels who directed the union of the soul-spirit with the terrestrial and physical. People believed and felt that the god Freya and his sister Freya, who were especially beloved divinities here in the north, had originally been those angel beings who had poured into the human soul all that this soul required, in order on the physical plane to develop further those old forces that had arisen out of clairvoyant capacities. Within the physical world, a world limited to the external senses, Freya was the one who continued to develop all that had earlier been absorbed through former clairvoyant capacities. He was the living continuation of forces received through clairvoyance. He therefore had to unite with the physical corporeal instruments existing in the human body itself for the use of these soul forces, which then transmit to the physical plane what has been perceived in primeval clairvoyance. This is reflected in the marriage of Freyr with Gerda, the giant's daughter. She is derived from the physical forces of earthly evolution. All these pictures mirror the descent of the divine spiritual into the physical. The figure of Frere portrays in a remarkable way how Frere makes use of what enables the human being to make manifest on the physical plane what he has been prepared for through his former clairvoyance. The name of his horse is Blodugoffi, Bloodhoof indicating that the blood is an essential factor in the development of the eye capital. And a remarkable magical ship is placed at his disposal. It can span the sky, or be folded up to fit inside a tiny box. What is this magical ship? If Frère is the power that transmits clairvoyant forces to the physical plane, then this magical ship must be something that is peculiarly his own. It symbolizes the alternation between wakefulness in daytime and sleeping at night. Just as the human soul spans the cosmos during sleep until the moment of waking, so too the magical ship expands, only to be folded up again during the day in the folds of the brain and stowed away in that tiny box, the human skull. You will find all this portrayed in a wonderful way in the mythological figures of Nordic-Germanic mythology. Those of you who probe more deeply into these matters will gradually be convinced that what has been implanted and instilled by means of these pictures into the folk soul, the folk heart and mind of these people, is no flight of fancy, but actually stems from the schools of the initiates. Thus in the guiding archangel, the folk spirit of the North, much has remained of the old education through clairvoyant perception much of what can arise in a soul whose development on the physical plane is directly derived from a clairvoyant development. Although not apparent from the external point of view today, the archangel of the Germanic North has within him the inclination, one that fits him particularly well, to understand modern spiritual science and to transform it in the appropriate manner in order to satisfy the inherent potentialities of the people. You will therefore appreciate why I said that the soul of the Germanic-Nordic peoples in particular is best fitted to understand what I was only able to indicate briefly in the public lecture I gave here about the reappearance of the Christ. Spiritual research today shows us how, now that the Kali Yuga has run its course, Having lasted 5,000 years from approximately 3,100 B.C. to A.D. 1899, new faculties are beginning to develop in human beings. Initially, these will appear in an isolated few who are especially gifted in this direction. A time will come, for example, when individuals will be able, through the natural development of their faculties, to perceive something of what is today spoken about only by spiritual science and its spiritual research. We are told here that in future increasing numbers of people will be found in whom the organs of the etheric body are so developed that they will attain the kind of clairvoyance that is at present only attainable through meditative schooling. Why will this happen? What will be the nature of the etheric body for those individuals? Some will receive certain impressions, one of which I should like to describe as follows. While carrying out an action, the person will find his attention drawn to something else. A kind of dream vision will arise in him, which at first he does not comprehend. But if he has heard of karma, of how world events conform to certain laws, He will gradually come to understand that what he has seen is the karmic counterpart of his action in the etheric world. This is how the first elements of future capacities gradually develop. From the middle of the twentieth century onward, those who are open to the stimulus of spiritual science will gradually come to experience a renewal of what Paul saw in etheric clairvoyance as a mystery to come the mystery of the living Christ. This will be a new revelation of Christ, one which must come when human faculties develop naturally to the point where Christ can be seen in the world in which he has been present ever since the mystery of Golgotha and in which the initiate can discover him. Humanity is gradually growing toward that world and will thus be able to observe from the standpoint of the physical plane what formerly could only be observed from the perspective of higher planes in the mystery schools. Spiritual training will also remain a necessity, however. The way it presents things differs from what can be discovered by souls who have not undergone training. Because it transforms the human physical body, spiritual training will show the mystery of the living Christ in a new way, namely, in the etheric world, from the perspective of the physical plane. At first a few isolated individuals will have this experience, but later, over the coming three thousand years, it will become possible for increasing numbers. The living Christ perceived by Paul, the Christ who has been in the etheric world since the mystery of Golgotha, will be seen by ever-increasing numbers of people. Manifestations of the Christ will be experienced by human beings at ever higher levels. That is the mystery of the evolution of Christ. At the time of the mystery of Golgotha, it was intended that they should comprehend everything from the perspective of the physical plane. Therefore it was necessary for them to see the Christ on the physical plane, to receive tidings of Him and bear witness to His dominion on that plane. But humanity is meant to progress and develop higher faculties. So those who believe that the manifestation of Christ will be repeated in the form that was necessary nineteen hundred years ago lack knowledge of human progress. At that time the event took place on the physical plane because the forces of humanity were adapted to the physical plane. But those forces of humanity will continue to develop. And in the course of the next three thousand years Christ will be able to speak more and more to the human being's higher faculties. What I have just said is a truth that has long been communicated from within the esoteric schools to a select few. It is a truth which today has to be discovered on the basis of spiritual science, because spiritual science is a preliminary school in which what is to come may be studied. Human beings are now adapted to freedom and making their own discovery of what is growing within them. Therefore, it could happen that those who are the early pioneers of the Christ vision will be denounced as fools on account of their message to humanity. Humanity may descend yet further into materialism and trample underfoot something that could become a most wonderful revelation. Everything that can happen in the future is to a certain extent now subject to human volition. So human beings may fail to notice what is intended for their salvation. It is therefore extremely important to realize that spiritual science is a preparation for the new Christ revelation. Materialism can err in two different ways. One way, which will likely take place because of the traditions of the West, is that everything which the first pioneers of the new Christ revelation will announce in the twentieth century based on their own vision will be dismissed as a figment of the imagination or the height of folly. Materialism has come to dominate every sphere of life today. It is not only ingrained in the West, for it has also taken hold of the East, where, however, it manifests in a different form. Eastern materialism might well take the form of humanity failing to recognize the higher aspects of the Christ revelation. From this would follow what I have often spoken of here, and must repeat again and again, namely, that materialistic thinking will have a purely materialistic conception of the reappearance of Christ. Thus it could happen that under the influence of the truths uttered by spiritual science, people might venture to speak of a future appearance of Christ, while still believing that he will appear in a physical body. The result would simply be materialism of a different hue, merely perpetuating what has already existed for centuries. People have always exploited this false materialism. Indeed, certain individuals have declared themselves to be the reappearing Christ. The most recent well-known case occurred in the 17th century when a man from Smyrna called Zabatai Zevi presented himself as the Christ who had reappeared. He made a great stir. Not only those who lived in his immediate environment made pilgrimages to visit him, but also people from Hungary, Poland, Germany, France, Italy, and Southern Africa. Zabatai Zevi was everywhere hailed as the physical incarnation of a messiah. I do not propose to recount the tragedy of humanity connected with the person of Zabatai Zevi. In the seventeenth century, no great harm was done. At that time, human beings were not yet really free agents, although they could recognize the truth through a kind of spiritual feeling. In the twentieth century, however, it would be a great misfortune if under the pressure of materialism the manifestation of Christ were to be taken in a materialistic sense, implying that one must look for his return in a physical body. This would only serve to prove that humanity had not acquired any perception of or insight into the real progress of human evolution toward a higher spirituality. False messiahs will inevitably appear, and thanks to the materialism of our time, they will find popular favor, just as Zabatai Zevi did in the seventeenth century. For those who have been spiritually prepared, it will be a severe test to recognize where the truth lies and to know whether the spiritual theories are really filled with a living spiritual feeling or whether they are only a disguised form of materialism. The further development of spiritual science will be tested by whether people will develop sufficiently through it to discern that in the spirit they must see the spirit, that they must look up into the etheric world, that they must look upward to see a new revelation of the Christ, or whether they remain on the physical plane and want to regard a revelation in the physical body as the Christ. Spiritual science has yet to undergo this test. There is no doubt that nowhere has the ground been better prepared for a recognition of the truth in this matter than in the places where the Germanic-Nordic mythology has flourished. In the way in which it has been passed down to us, the twilight of the gods embraces a significant vision of the future. And this now brings me to a theme I have already touched upon. I have told you that in a folk community that has so recently left its clairvoyant past behind. A clairvoyant sense is also developed in its guiding folk spirit, in order that the new found clairvoyance can again be understood. Thus if a human community is experiencing this new era with new human faculties in the very region where the Germanic-Nordic mythology once flourished, then this human community must realize that the old clairvoyance will assume a different form after humanity has undergone development on the physical plane. For a time, the old clairvoyance has fallen silent. For a time, the world of Odin and Thor, of Baldur and Hodur, of Freyr and Freya, has retreated out of sight, has stood in the background. But it will return again in a time when other forces have, meanwhile, been at work upon the human soul. When this human soul looks out upon a new world with a new etheric clairvoyance, it will realize that it can no longer avail itself of the old forms of the forces that educated it. If it were to do so, then all the counter-forces would rise up against that force whose function in olden times was to develop the human being's capacities up to a certain level. Odin and Thor will be visible again, but now the soul that has undergone development will see them in a different light. All the counter-forces of Odin and Thor, everything that has developed as a counter-force, will become visible once more, but now in a mighty tableau. But the human soul would not progress. It would not be able to resist injurious influences if it were subject solely to the forces known to the old clairvoyance. Once upon a time, Thor endowed the human being with his eye. This eye has developed on the physical plane, has evolved out of the Midgard snake, which Loki, the Luciferic power, left behind in the astral body. What Thor was once able to give, and what the human soul comes to transcend, enters into conflict with what proceeds from the Midgard snake. This is depicted in Nordic mythology as the conflict between Thor and the Midgard snake. They are evenly matched, which means that they slay one another. In the same way, Odin wrestles with the Fenris wolf, and they annihilate each other. Freyr, who for a time molded the human soul forces, has to succumb to what has been given from out of the earth forces themselves to the eye, which has, meanwhile, been developed on the physical plane. Freyr is overcome by the flaming sword of earthbound Surtur. All these details that are set down in the twilight of the gods will find their correspondence in a new etheric vision that really points to the future. What remains will be the Fenris wolf. There is a very profound truth concealed in the fact that the Fenris wolf remains in his struggle with Odin. In the near future, there will be no greater danger for humanity than the inclination to cling to the old clairvoyance that has not been developed by new forces, an inclination that could tempt human beings to remain content with the manifestations of the old astral clairvoyance of primeval times, such as the soul pictures of the Fenris wolf. It would again be a severe trial for the future prospects of spiritual science, if perhaps, even in the domain of spiritual science itself, the inclination were to arise to give greater credence to all kinds of confused, chaotic clairvoyance, than to that clairvoyance which is illumined by reason and spiritual knowledge. Such relics of the old clairvoyance would wreak havoc by imposing chaotic images of all kinds on people's understanding. Such clairvoyance cannot be challenged by what itself stems from the old clairvoyance, but only by something that has matured in a healthy way during the Kali Yuga in order to give birth to a new clairvoyance. The power given by the old archangel Odin, the old clairvoyant powers, cannot save humanity. Something very different will have to arise and these powers are known to Germanic-Nordic mythology. It is fully aware of their existence. It knows that the etheric form exists in which there shall be embodied what we are now to see again, the Christ in etheric form. He alone will succeed in banishing the dark and impure clairvoyant powers that would confuse humanity if Odin should fail to overcome the Fenris wolf symbolizes the atavistic clairvoyance. Vidar, who has been silent until now, will overcome the Fenris wolf. This too is told to us by the twilight of the gods. Those who recognize the significance of Vidar and feel him in their soul will realize that in the twentieth century the power to see the Christ can be given to humanity anew Vidar, who is part of the heritage of northern and central Europe, will again be visible to human beings. He was kept secret in the mystery schools as a god who was awaiting his future mission. Even his image is only described in veiled terms. Perhaps this shows in the fact that no one knows who is represented in a picture that has been discovered near Cologne, yet it is clearly a likeness of Vidar. Throughout the period of the Kali Yuga, powers were acquired that are to equip the new human beings to see the new revelation of Christ. Those who are called upon to interpret from the signs of the times what is to come are aware that new spiritual research will re-establish the power of Vidar, who will banish from the hearts and minds of human beings all the dark and confusing relics of the old clairvoyance and will awaken in the human soul the new clairvoyance that is gradually unfolding. When the wondrous figure of Vidar shines forth to us out of the twilight of the gods, we realize that Germanic-Nordic mythology holds a promise of future hope. We feel ourselves to be inwardly related to the figure of Vidar, the deeper secrets of whose being we are now striving to comprehend. We hope that those forces which the archangel of the Germanic-Nordic world can contribute to the evolution of modern times will be able to provide the core and living essence of spiritual science. Only one part of the development of humanity and the spirit, one part of a greater whole, has been realized for the fifth post-Atlantean cultural age. Another part has yet to be accomplished. Those members of the Nordic-Germanic peoples who feel within themselves the elemental and vital energies of a young people will be best able to contribute to this development. Although the seed for this will be sown in human souls, they themselves will have to make the effort. In the twentieth century it will be possible to make mistakes because human beings now have a degree of free choice in determining their goal which must not be predetermined. It is therefore a question of having a proper understanding of the goal ahead. If, then, spiritual science reflects the knowledge of the Christ being, and if we start from a true understanding of that being, whom we seek in the very core of the European peoples themselves, if we set our future hopes on this understanding, then we shall truly not be motivated by any kind of personal predilection or predisposition of temperament. It has sometimes been said that one can choose whichever name one likes for the foremost being in the evolution of humanity, and that those who recognize the Christ being will never insist on retaining the name of Christ. But if we understand the Christ impulse in the right way, surely we will not say... There is a being living in human evolution, in the humanity of the West and the East, and this being must conform to personal predilections for one truth or another truth. This is not compatible with esoteric teachings. What is compatible with such teachings is that once we recognize that such a being should be given the name of Buddha, we should steadfastly abide by our decision irrespective of whether we do or do not like the name. It is not a question of sympathy or antipathy, but of the factual truth. The moment the facts tell us something different, we should be prepared to act differently. Facts and facts alone must decide. We have no wish to introduce Orientalism or Occidentalism into what we look upon as the lifeblood of spiritual science. And if we should discover, in the realm of the Nordic-Germanic archangels, a source of potential nourishment for true spiritual science, then this will not be the prerogative of a particular people or tribe, but of the whole of humanity. What is given, what must be given, to the whole of humanity, may, it is true, originate in a particular region, but it must be given to humanity as a whole we do not differentiate between East and West. We take with love the surpassing grandeur of the primeval culture of the Holy Rishis in its true form. We take with love the Persian culture, the Egypto-Chaldean and Greco-Roman cultures. And with the same objectivity, we also accept the cultural heritage of Europe. The needs of the situation alone compel us to present the facts as they really are. If we incorporate everything that comes from the whole of humanity, everything that every religion contributes to human cultural progress, into what we recognize today to be the common property of humanity, then the more we do this, the more we are acting in accordance with the Christ principle. Since this is capable of further development, we must overcome what it went through in early centuries and millennia, when it was still in its least perfect early beginnings. Let us not look to the past or be guided by it. We are not concerned with traditions, but with what can be discovered by looking into the spiritual world. For us, the most important element of the Christ principle does not lie in what has been, however much tradition may insist upon this, but in what is to come. We rely not on historical tradition, but seek to discover what is to come. It is not the external, historical approach to early Christian times with which we are concerned. Once Christianity has overcome its childhood growing pains, it will continue to evolve. It even went forth into foreign lands and wanted to convert people to the particular Christian dogmas of the age. But what we see before our souls is a Christianity which tells us that Christ has been at work in every age, that we shall find Christ wherever we may go, and that the Christ principle is the highest principle of spiritual science. Buddhism may acknowledge as Buddhists only those who swear by Buddha, but Christianity does not swear by any prophet, since it is not subject to a religious founder attached to a particular people. But recognizes the God of all humanity. Those who understand Christianity know that it involves a mystery which became manifest on the physical plane at Golgotha. By contemplating this mystery, we are led in the direction I have been describing. We may also be aware that the form in which people experienced the mystery of Golgotha was the only form in which this was possible at that time. We refuse to be imposed upon by dogmas, even those of the Christian past. And if any dogma were to be inflicted on us, irrespective of its source, we would reject it in the name of the true Christ principle. However, many people may try to confine the historical Christ within a confessional creed, However many may declare that our vision of the future Christ is mistaken, we shall not permit ourselves to be led astray when they declare that he must be like this or like that, even when it comes from the lips of those who ought to know who Christ is. Equally, the idea of the Christ being should not be limited or circumscribed by Oriental traditions or colored by the dogmas of Oriental dogmatism. What is taught out of the truly spiritual sources concerning the evolution of the future must be free and independent of all tradition and authority. It is wonderful to see the degree of mutual understanding that exists among those who have gathered here. Many who have come from elsewhere and are not of Nordic extraction have remarked to me again and again in the last few days how free they feel in their relations with the people of the Scandinavian North. It is proof that, even if some may not be conscious of it, we are able to understand each other at the deepest levels of spiritual knowledge, and that we shall understand each other, especially in those matters which I emphasized at the last Theosophical Congress in Budapest, and which I repeated during our own general meeting in Berlin, when we had the great pleasure of seeing friends from Norway among us. It would not be good for spiritual science if those who cannot as yet See into the spiritual world, were obliged to accept in blind faith what they are told. I ask you now, as I asked you in Berlin, never to accept on authority or faith anything I have ever said or will say. Even before one has reached the stage of clairvoyance, it is possible to test the results of clairvoyant vision. Whatever I may have said about Zarathustra and Jesus of Nazareth, about Hermes and Moses, about Odin and Thor, or about Christ Jesus himself. I ask you not to accept it as an article of faith or a statement founded on authority. I beg you to desist from adherence to the principle of authority, for this principle would be detrimental to us. I am sure, however, that when you begin to reflect objectively on what you have been told, when you investigate the accessible records, the religious and mythological sources and the statements of scientists, then you will realize the correctness of what I have said. Avail yourselves of every means at your disposal, the more the better. I have no qualms. Whatever is put forward from Rosicrucian sources can be tested in every way. Armed with the materialistic criticism of the Gospels, verify what I have said about Christ Jesus. Verify what I have said about history as thoroughly as possible, by all the means at your command on the physical plane. I am sure that the more thoroughly you test it, the more you will find that what has been given out of the sources of the Rosicrucian mystery will correspond to the truth. I am counting on you not to believe statements based on Rosicrucian sources, but to test them, to test them not superficially, by the superficial methods of present-day science, but ever more and more conscientiously. If you take the latest results of the sciences attained by means of their most modern techniques, if you examine everything that historical or religious research can offer, then I will have no qualms. The more you test them, the more will the truth of statements based on Rosicrucian sources be confirmed. You must accept nothing on authority. The best students of spiritual science are those who initially take what is said as an incentive, and test it by the facts of life itself. For in life, too, at every stage of life, you can test what is given out from the sources of Rosicrucianism. It is far from the intention of these lectures to lay down dogmas and claim that the facts are such and such and must be believed. Verify them by an exchange of views with people of able and active mind, and you will find confirmation of what has been said in a prophetic indication of the future appearance of Christ. You need only open your eyes and verify it objectively. We make no appeal to belief in authority. This need to test everything received from spiritual science should become a kind of basic attitude, imbuing our whole approach. I want to impress upon you, therefore, that it is not the true way of spiritual science to accept a statement as dogma on the authority of one person or another. Spiritual science challenges us to take its findings and test them in life. Then any bias that might be detected in a statement made by spiritual science will be annulled. Our views must not be colored by any bias toward either an Eastern or a Western approach, for both are of equal appeal, to those who speak in the sense of Rosicrucianism. The inner nature of the facts alone determines their truth. It is this inner nature that we must especially bear in mind at a moment when we are talking about the folk spirit who prevails across all the northern regions. Here lives the spirit of Germanic-Nordic mythology. Although his presence remains as yet below the surface, his influence is more widely diffused in Europe than one imagines. If such a thing as a conflict among the northern peoples were possible, it could not involve a dispute about contributions to the common welfare, for every people must practice self-knowledge and ask itself, how can we best contribute to the common welfare? Then whatever leads to the collective progress of all, to the common welfare of humanity, will flow toward a common altar. The sources of what we are able to contribute lie in every individual. The Germanic-Nordic Archangel will bring to the overall future culture of humanity what he is most suited for in keeping with the capacities he has acquired, which we have already outlined here. He is especially suited to ensure that what could not yet be accomplished in the first half of the fifth post-Atlantean cultural age May play its part in the second half, namely the spiritual element we were able to recognize in a germinal, prophetic form in the Slav philosophy and in the national sentiment of the Slav peoples. As long as this remains in a preparatory stage, the first half of the fifth post Atlantean age must be held back. At first, all that could be achieved by way of a philosophy was a highly sublimated spiritual perception. This must then be grasped and imbued by the vital energies of the people, so that it may become the common property of all humanity, and may be realized in all aspects of our earthly life. Let us try to come to an understanding on this subject, for then this rather fraught theme will have caused no great harm, if all who are assembled here from northern, southern, eastern, western, and central Europe feel that it is a theme which is really important for the whole of humanity, if we feel that not only the larger nations, but also the smaller isolated groups, each have their appointed mission and have to contribute their share to the whole. Often the smallest national fragments have exceedingly important contributions to make because it is their task to nurture either old or new motifs of soul life. Thus, even though we have made this fraught topic the subject of our lectures, it will serve to foster the basic sentiment of a community of soul among all those who are united in thinking and feeling on the basis of spiritual science and its ideals. Only if we were still reacting out of sympathy and antipathy, if we had no clear understanding of the essence of our worldwide movement, could misunderstandings arise from what has been said. But if we have grasped the pervading spirit of these lectures, then the ideas presented may also help us to make a firm resolution to harbor the high ideal, each from our own standpoint and from our own background, to contribute to a common goal, what lies in our own mission. We can best achieve this through our own individual initiative and our natural predisposition. We can best serve humanity if we develop our own particular talents so as to offer them to the whole of humanity as a sacrifice for the ongoing stream of culture. We must learn to understand this. We must learn to understand that it would be terrible if spiritual science did not contribute to the development of human beings, of angels and archangels, but were used instead to support the convictions of one people at the expense of another. It is not the purpose of spiritual science to assist in imposing the religious beliefs of one region upon another, if the East were to prevail over the West or vice versa, this would in no way accord with the views of spiritual science. To accord with spiritual science we must put our best, our purely human qualities, at the service of humanity as a whole. We must live fully within our own being, not for our own sake, but for the sake of all human beings. That is the meaning of tolerance in the sense of spiritual science. I had to add these words as an accompaniment to the rather delicate subject we have been discussing. Spiritual science, as we will realize more and more clearly, will bring to an end all the divisions of humanity. It is now the right time to become acquainted with the folk souls, because spiritual science is here to teach us not to set folk souls against one another in opposition, but rather to call on them, to work together harmoniously the better we understand this the better students of spiritual science we will be on this note we will end for the time being the course of lectures given here for the knowledge we gather must ultimately find an echo in our feelings and our thinking and in the goals of spiritual science set before us the more we practice this in our lives the better students of spiritual science we become I have found that a good many of those who have accompanied us to Oslo have received a most favorable impression which they have expressed in the words I am so much enjoying being here in the north. And if we wish to express ourselves in the words of silent Vidar of the Esir, we may say, when high spiritual forces will have been awakened in humanity in the future, which we will surely see before our eyes, then he will be the active friend of cooperative work and endeavor in the cause for which we have all assembled here. With this object in view, let us take leave of one another here on the physical plane, after having been together for a few days, but hope to remain always bound together in spirit with this intention. Irrespective of where we come from as students of spiritual science, whether near or far, May we always meet together in harmony, even when the theme we have come to discuss concerns the individual characteristics of one region of the earth or another. We know that these are but individual tongues of sacrificial fire that must mount together into a mighty blaze for the good of humanity with the help of spiritual science, which is so close to our hearts and so deeply rooted in our souls. That is the end of Lecture 11 and the end of the book The Mission of Folk Souls, 11 Lectures by Rudolf Steiner, Collected Works, Volume 121, Translated by Joanna Collis